Uh, today we're starting a brand new series in the book of Galatians. And Galatians is a letter in the New Testament that the Apostle Paul wrote to several churches in Galatia. And I want us to just think about the overriding theme of what it means to be free what it means to actually be free. And sometimes I think we take that word free for granted because uh, either we didn't earn something, so something may be free to us, but it didn't cost us anything, so we may not truly understand what it means to be free. Sometimes uh, we have in our head this, these different levels of freedom, like this is free or this is really free. If you ever went to a store and tried to cash in on one of their, their free events or one of their free promotions, sometimes you find out that free isn't really free. It's free as long as you spend $25, right? Or sometimes you'll go to a store that says buy one, get one free. And then a lot of times, do you guys remember Columbia House videos or Columbia House music where you had to buy CDs and you had to buy these videos? And they said you get the first 12 free, but then you had to sign up for like a kajillion more after that, right? And then you always had to pay shipping on all of those. So even though they said it was free, you're still paying for the shipping. And I don't know about you, but no VHS tape costs $25 to ship, all right? They made some money on the back end of that as well. So we know sometimes free doesn't always mean free. But one of the things that when I was reading and just studying for this is the fact that, that even sometimes freedom isn't really understood until we lose it, right? Our brothers and sisters and the, and the citizens over in Ukraine are experiencing that right now, that there is this chance that they may not be free because another government wants to take over them. And they may say all that they want, that there are some provinces that feel like they're more Russian than, than Ukrainian. Either way, they're their own sovereign country and their freedom is in jeopardy, right? We understand freedom a lot over here because of just how strong we are when it comes to our freedom, how our, our nation was built. Not every country understands this. Do you know there was a day um, several years ago on, on, in, the, on the, in the nation of Grenada that there was actually a, a coup attempt and these Cuban, uh, uh, Cuban soldiers went into Grenada and very secretly and very quietly began to make moves in order to overthrow uh, the, the government in Grenada. And they, and they kidnapped people and they know there was at least 50 kids that were kidnapped. They never found them. And it was very quiet, very hush-hush. And all of a sudden, the people on the island of Grenada went from being free to recognizing that they were now going to be occupied by Cuba overnight. And it was very quiet how they did this. This was before internet, before any kind of, um, except for like satellite phones, there was really not a lot going on, so it took a while. But as soon as President Ronald Reagan heard about this, he sent the military over to help free these people, and in about a week, they were free. But if you ask anyone who lived during that time, they'll tell you that they didn't really understood what it means to be free until that freedom was taken away. And for us as believers and for us as a church, I want us, as we embark in, in, this, in this rich letter, probably one of the most richest and full letters that the Apostle Paul will write to these churches in Galatia, what does it actually mean to be free in Jesus? And what does it mean when we decide to entangle ourselves in things that would cause us to lose this freedom that we have in Jesus Christ? And so whenever we open up a new book of the Bible, if there is one, I like to share with you a video that our friends at the Bible Project put together to just to give you an overview of what the book of Galatians is about. So we're going to watch this video and then we'll get into the book. Paul's letter to the Galatians. It was written to a number of churches in the region of Galatia where Paul had traveled on one of his missionary journeys. You can read the stories in the book of Acts. He wrote this important letter from a place of deep passion and frustration. Here's the backstory. Christianity began as a Jewish messianic movement in Jerusalem, but its message was for all humanity, and so it quickly spread beyond Israel. By Paul's time as a missionary, there were as many non-Jews as there were Jewish people in the Jesus movement, and this sparked a huge debate that we know about from the book of Acts chapter 15. Historically, the covenant people of God were focused in one ethnic group, Israel, and they were set apart by the practices commanded in the Torah, like circumcision of males, eating kosher, observing the Sabbath. And there were many Jewish Christians who believed that for all of these non-Jews to truly become a part of God's family, they needed to obey the laws of the Torah. And so some of these Jewish Christians ended up coming to the Galatian churches. They were undermining Paul and demanding circumcision of all these male non-Jewish Christians. 
And so many of them were. And when Paul found out, he was brokenhearted and angry. And this letter is the result. He first challenges the Galatians with his summary of the gospel message about the crucified Messiah. He then argues that this gospel is what creates the new multi-ethnic family of Jesus and Abraham. And then he shows how this gospel is what truly transforms people by the presence and power of the Spirit. He opens by expressing his bewilderment that the Galatians have embraced a different gospel. It's the one promoted by these Christians who badmouth Paul and demand circumcision. So Paul first defends the authenticity of his message and authority as an apostle. He was commissioned by the risen Jesus himself to go to the non-Jewish world. Remember the story from the book of Acts. Paul says it was only later that he went to Jerusalem to consult the other apostles like Peter or James. And when he told them he wasn't requiring non-Jewish Christians to be circumcised or eat kosher, they were in full support. But this tension ran deeper. Peter had come to Antioch to visit and see all of these non-Jewish Christians, and he was eating and mingling with them. But when some of this Jerusalem opposition group showed up in Antioch, Peter caved under their pressure. He stopped eating with these uncircumcised Christians, and he was avoiding them. And so Paul confronted and accused Peter of hypocrisy, of not staying true to the gospel. For Paul, demanding these new Christians to become circumcised and Torah observant, it's wrong-headed for all kinds of reasons. First of all, because it's a betrayal of the gospel. Or in his words, people are not justified by the works of the Torah, but rather by the faith of Jesus the Messiah. And we have faith in the Messiah Jesus. To be justified, or literally to be declared righteous, it's a rich Old Testament term for Paul. It's when God declares that someone is in a right relationship with him. They're forgiven, they're given a place in God's family, and they are being transformed by God's grace. And it's Paul's conviction that no one can be justified by observing the commands of the Torah, but only by the faith of Jesus. This is a dense phrase, and it could refer to Jesus' own faithfulness in living and dying on our behalf, or it could refer to our own trust and devotion to Jesus. Either way, the point is clear. People are justified only through trusting in what God did for them through Jesus, not by what they do for themselves. At the heart of Paul's gospel is this claim, that when people trust in the Messiah Jesus, what's true of him becomes true of them. His life, death, and resurrection become theirs. Or in his words, I've been crucified with the Messiah, and it's not I who come back to life. It's the Messiah living in me. And the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And so the reason anyone can say that they are right with God or belong to Jesus' covenant family, it's not because they obeyed the laws of the Torah. It's only because of what Jesus did for them that they could never do for themselves. Now, this profound understanding of what Jesus accomplished, it has huge implications for who can now be included in God's covenant family and for what it means to live as a member of that family. So Paul first turns to the stories about Abraham in Genesis, how he was justified or declared righteous before God by simply having faith, by trusting in God's promise that one day all nations would find God's blessing through him and his offspring. God's purpose was always to have one large multi-ethnic family of people who relate to him on the basis of faith, not on the laws of the Torah. But that raises an important question. Why did God give the laws of the Torah to Israel then? Here Paul offers a very brief and dense explanation that he will later fill out in his letter to the Romans. He observes that the laws of the Torah were given to Israel at Mount Sinai long after God's promise to Abraham. And if you read the Torah carefully, he says, you'll see that God always intended the laws to be a temporary measure. He says the laws had both a negative and a positive role. Negatively, the laws acted like a magnifying glass on Israel's sin. They exposed how Israel shared in the sinful human condition, constantly rebelling against God's law. And so the law, which is good, ended up pronouncing Israel guilty and all humanity with them. Or in his words, the laws imprisoned everyone under the power of sin. But the laws also had a positive role. They acted like a strict school teacher that kept Israel in line until the coming of the promised offspring of Abraham, the Messiah. And once the Messiah came, he fulfilled the purpose of the laws on Israel's behalf. 
Jesus was the faithful Israelite who truly loved God and neighbor. And as Israel's king, he died to take the curse and consequence of Israel's failure into himself and bring redemption. And so now through Jesus, the offspring of Abraham, God's blessing can come to all people regardless of their ethnicity, social status, or gender. For Paul, requiring Torah observance from non-Jewish Christians, it makes no sense. It's acting as if Jesus didn't fulfill God's promise or deal with our sins. It neglects the new freedom gained for us through Jesus and the gift of the Spirit, and it limits God's promise and blessing to one ethnic family. But, Paul's opponents might argue, the laws of the Torah, they're a proven guide to living according to God's will. How will non-Jewish Christians learn this? Paul responds in chapters 5 and 6 by describing how Jesus' transforming presence through the Spirit is the key. The laws of the Torah are good. They're wise, Paul says. In fact, they can all be summarized, as Jesus did, in the command to love your neighbor as yourself. But the laws, good as they are, they did not give Israel the power to obey them. In contrast, the good news is that Jesus did fulfill the laws on our behalf, and now he lives in us through the Spirit, making his people into new humans who fulfill the law by loving others. So Paul goes on to contrast this old and new humanity. The habits of the old humanity are obvious. These are behaviors that dehumanize people, they destroy relationships and whole communities. And while the laws of the Torah prohibited these behaviors, Jesus actually put them to death on the cross. So when a person trusts in Jesus and lives in dependence on the Spirit, his life becomes theirs and produces what Paul calls the fruit of the Spirit. This is Jesus' way of life that he wants to reproduce in his family so that they become people of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. But this fruit isn't automatic, Paul says. It requires cultivation just like real fruit. Or in his words, if we live by the Spirit, we have to keep in step with the Spirit. This requires intentionality. We have to learn how to prune off our old habits and cultivate new ones. And as we do so, we find ourselves carried along by the Spirit. As Jesus reshapes our minds and hearts and makes us into people who love God and others. And in this way, Jesus' people fulfill what Paul calls the Torah of the Messiah. In the end, Paul concludes, this requirement for Christians to become Torah observant or be circumcised, it's an adventure in missing the point. What really matters is God's new creation, this new multi-ethnic family of the Messiah, people full of faith in Jesus who are learning to love God and others in the power of the Spirit. And that's what the letter to the Galatians is all about. So it's a, it's a rich book of a lot of things that we're going to go over. But one of the overarching themes, of course, is the grace that we have and the freedom that we have in Jesus Christ. And so um, another way to look at the book of Galatians is to the way I think that Tim Keller puts it good. He says how the, what the gospel is and how it works. And so it's this idea of we don't earn good favor with Christ by doing good things. We have been declared good because of what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross, right? And this is something that I think we get theologically, but practically we, do, we don't live this way, that we get everything from what? From our relationship with Jesus Christ. We did nothing to earn it. There's nothing that we can do to keep it. Jesus gave his life for us, and we are forever his child because of it. Okay, so that's, that's the overarching theme of grace and freedom. So now I want us to stand and let's look at the book of Galatians and we're going to read chapter 1. The Bible says, Paul, an apostle not for men or by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia, Grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I'm amazed 
that you are so quickly turning away from him who called you by the grace of Christ and turning to a different gospel. That's not another gospel, but there are some who, tr- who are troubling you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one that we preach to you, a curse be on him. And as we have said before, I say now again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, a curse be on him. For am I now trying to persuade people or God? Am I striving to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. For I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel preached by me is not of human origin. For I did not receive it from a human source, and I was not taught it, but it came by revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard about my former way of life in Judaism. I intensely persecuted God's church and tried to destroy it. I advanced in Judaism beyond many contemporaries among my people because I was extremely zealous for the traditions of my ancestors. But when God, who from my mother's womb set me apart and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me so that I could preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. I did not go up to Jerusalem to those who had become apostles before me. I instead went to Arabia and back to Damascus. Then after three years, I did go up to Jerusalem to get to know Cephas, and I stayed with him 15 days. But I didn't see any of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. I declare in the sight of God, and I'm not lying in what I write to you. Afterward, I went to the regions of Syria and Sicilia. I remain personally unknown to the Judean churches that are in Christ. They simply kept hearing, he who formerly persecuted us now preaches the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. My friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks for standing. You can be seated. So as we saw in the video and as you, as you read the, the letter that Paul wrote, that this, uh, the, these churches weren't just one single church. These were a group of churches in Galatia. And this, this is kind of different than the other letters that, that Paul would write. Paul would write specifically to a church in Ephesus, specifically to a church in Philippi. And, 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 but in this one, he writes to churches in Galatia. And so either the model of churches were different, that these are more type of house churches, or that these were churches that just seemed to do a lot of things together. And Paul did a lot of maybe joint teaching with the guys that would wind up being the pastors of these churches. But regardless, Paul opens his letter the same way that he does uh, his other letters. So let's look at verse one. So when he's looking at, when he, when he writes them, he says, of course, he gives them uh, a greeting and he says, Paul. Now this one he does differently. He doesn't call himself a servant first, but what does he call himself? An apostle. So we've spoken about this before. Apostles were a specific group of men that were taught directly by Jesus Christ during his earthly ministry and during the first century before the Bible was completed. The office of apostle is not an office that anyone can claim today because we don't hear from Jesus directly. We hear from Jesus through the word of God. No one receives divine revelation because the word of God is completed. We get our final rule for faith and practice is the word of God. Okay, And that's important because when someone tries to use a title outside of the scriptural bounds, what they try to do is now give themselves the ability to say whatever they want because they can always pull the God card and say what? Well, God told me this, right? This is one of the problems that that we should have with the Vatican. The Pope is, anything that the Pope says, no matter who he is, is declared to be higher than the word of God. Which, which actually makes a lot of sense when you're trying to lead a billion people, right? If somebody disagrees with what you said, you can't get married, you can't do this, you can't do that. Oh, God told me. Oh, oh. Right? Pulling the God card is something that you and I shouldn't do. A lot of times we make really bad decisions and we want people to co-sign on the decisions that we make and we want to use like, oh, God led me to this. Did he? Show me. What, what, what verse are you using to back up what you said? Well, I, well, well, God just wants me to be happy and the Bible talks about love and God is love. Well, God is love, but he's also just. And the only reason you and I escape hell is because of Jesus Christ, not because you found love. 
This book is our final word for faith and practice. So before, now, now this is the benefit that we have of living millennia after this book was written, right? But for those who didn't have the full uh, Bible, how would they know what God was saying? So God would move people to write things like we talked about, and that's how we have the Bible preserved. But these specific men were called, and who the apostles were, we know they were. There were 11 of the disciples. Remember, Judas Iscariot killed himself, right? And they picked the 12th. Remember? What was the 12th guy's name? Remember? Matthias. Remember that guy? Now, was he really an apostle? Well, there's not a lot of evidence of whether or not he was taught directly by Jesus Christ, but we know full well that the apostle Paul, who was on his way to literally persecute and kill Christians, was stopped dead in his tracks and spoke to specifically and personally by Jesus Christ. Okay? So Paul's definition of what an apostle is, is the very pure definition of what it should be. Someone who was taught and received direct revelation through Jesus Christ. And so Paul uses this title, not only because just to verify what he's writing, but Paul usually when he writes a letter, like we'll see when we read over the book of Ephesus and, and Colossians, he'll say servant and apostle. This one he gets right to the point and he calls himself an apostle because he's going to have to lay down the truth to these people who are leaving what they first loved. Okay? So when the fact that Paul puts an apostle right away means that Paul is taking this seriously. Okay? And he says, now how did he become an apostle? Not by men or by man, so no one called him this, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. So he said, Christ specifically called me to this role. And so now who is he writing the letter to? All, and all the brothers are with me. So they're also greeting to the churches at Galatia. Okay, so this is going to be read in the church families of Galatia. And so he starts out like the way uh, we, we, we normally see a letter start out, grace and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. And so he's bringing this underlying theme of grace from the very greeting that this grace, this unmerited favor that we have with God, this, this, this favor that we have with the God of the universe that we don't deserve. And this supernatural enabling to live this Christian life according to the word of God that we shouldn't be able to live. This grace, he just, he prays that they continue to have an overwhelming sense of this grace and also peace and comfort, a settledness that only comes from who? God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ through the spirit of God. How and why? Why do we claim the grace and why do we claim peace through Jesus Christ? Because he is the one who gave himself up to pay the price for our sins and do what? Rescue us from this evil age. Hey, do you realize the gospel was so powerful that it not just changed your religious cycle or what the religious things that you do, the gospel was strong enough to rescue you and I from the very pit of eternal damnation. The gospel is so strong that it changed our destination from hell to heaven. That you and I went from being spiritually dead to being spiritually alive. You and I were blind and now we can see. We were lost and now we were found. And this gospel is powerful. It changed our life. It changed everything about us. You, you, you now have this, this spirit that tells you what's in bounds and out of bounds with what the word of God says. You have a spirit that calls you and teaches you and seals you to the day of redemption. God is now your father and you have direct access to the throne. You see that there's this passion in the way Paul talks about the gospel. And this is what we want to talk about today, the gospel and leadership. That to truly understand what the gospel is saying, it requires us to, to put on a little bit of courage and take leadership to defend the very thing that is the foundation of our faith. There are too many churches, there are too many preachers, there are too many movements, there are too many blog posts that are diluting what the Bible says about who Jesus is. And we're accepting tweetable lines, tweetable lines from preachers, we're accepting gifts, we're accepting memes because they make sense. And we go on TikTok and we hear these two little blurbs from a pastor, oh, wow, that sounds good, not really knowing what he's saying. It's high time for us to know what the Bible says about our faith so that when false teaching comes in, we are able to defend ourselves from it. Some of us think, well, that's just for the scholars. That's just, and th you're the ones that are going to be carried away. 
Some of us would rather go to a church that has the best music, the best technology, the best this and best that, and the preacher's okay, yeah, that's fine, but we love the music. Some of us skip out on church to go to Christian concerts instead of being with your church family, and I'm telling you, you're going to get diluted. If you don't know what the Bible says, but you feel good when you're done, then you're, you're, in, you're in trouble. Because the Bible is sharper than two, any two-edged sword. It's able to divide between the joints and the marrow, the sword and the spirit. There are times that you and I should leave this place not feeling good. Because God has convicted us, and we feel good when repentance comes, and when comfort comes, and conviction comes. These are the things that, that, that build us up, not just that we feel good when we leave. And this is what Paul is about to tell them about, because they, he, the way he words it is so just, just passionate for what he says. Verse 6, I'm amazed. And that word is exactly what you think it means in Greek. Shocked, bewildered. Wondering what happened. That's that you are so quickly turned away from him who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. It should bewilder us when we know the truth, have received the truth, have been converted and personally changed by the truth, it should shock us when one of us turns away from that. But what's more important, before we start looking at everybody else, it should shock you when you turn away from the Bible. And you say, well, I haven't turned away. Rob, I'm here right now. I know. But every time we think, say, or do something that displeases God and goes against the word of God, it should shock and hurt us that we would do that. Because if we love Jesus as much as he loved us, or let's put it this way, if we love what Jesus did for us, that we're telling people, yeah, I know Jesus, I, you know, my life has changed, we should be shocked when we turn from that. And Paul is looking at these believers and he's wondering, what happened to you that you are so quickly? It's not just that they turned, but it happened quick. And here's the way the devil works. Here's the way false teaching works. It happens quick because it starts real slow. It's not, he's not using the term quickly, quickly in a timeline of, hey, you got saved at hour six and you turned at hour 12. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that all of a sudden you went from loving Jesus to loving something different than Jesus said, and it happened like that. What was this turning point? What was this switch that turned? What changed? Because the gospel of grace that they had turned them into a different gospel. So then 70 starts to explain what happened. Okay, so it's not, it's not that there is another gospel, but there are some who are troubling and trying to distort the gospel of Christ. And this is where I want us to, to really think about it and park for a second. And I want us to just unpack what this is actually saying. You're, for the most part, okay, you and I won't start slipping into bad teaching or false doctrine all of a sudden, okay? It, it's not going to be that we're going to go from loving Jesus to loving Buddha, okay? That's not what's going to happen, or it's not going to be that we're going to go from loving Jesus to being an atheist. It's not going to happen that way for, for the most part. 99.9% .9 of the time, it's not going to happen that way. So how does it happen? How does somebody go from loving Jesus and attending a good Bible-believing church to just, you know, being maybe nominal in their faith, going once in a while, or not going anymore, or going to something else, right? Because this is normally the way it works, right? You, you, you start receiving things, and you start loosening up what, what you feel the Word of God says, and you loosen up, and I don't want to sound all legalistic because I'm not, but like loosening up your convictions, right? And we'll talk about what those are. You loosen up your convictions, and all of a sudden you see that, that you're attending 
attendance and everything and your involvement in the local body stops and then all of a sudden you, you, you stop, stop doing things and then you start receiving other things that weren't true. So it's not just like I switched, it's this gradual backslidden state that happens normally, right? And how does it happen? Well, it's not another gospel. False teachers will tell you to love Jesus. They will. They'll say Jesus was a great this, Jesus was a great guy. Some of them even say Jesus is godlike. Some will even say Jesus is the son of God, and then that's, they got you. Well, no, everything's okay. And somebody tries to warn you, and they say, hey, you know, just so you know, you should look a little bit deeper into what that uh, preacher actually thinks about, and, and you'll do it. And they'll say it all the time. I've done it to people, too. They'll say, hey, Rob, should you really be, like, reading books by him? I know what I'm doing. I, I went to enough school. I know. And then next thing you know, you read, and then you see it. And then when you do see it, sometimes we're so far in the, in the pit, we're looking back at all the things that we've quoted this guy, things that I've said from the pulpit. I'm like, this guy's a lunatic. But some of us, and I love you when I say this, please hear what I'm saying. Some of us don't know enough scripture to know any better. And that's what scares me, is that some of us just rely on what I say weekly Maybe something that you read daily to get you going, and this is the most scripture that you get in the week. You're not only anemic, you're not only physically and spiritually weak, you are going to fall for something. And you say, well, that's not true. That's a, look at any other like, discipline of education, you tell me that's not true. You don't like, what, what, did the school te- what did the high school math teacher used to say to me all the time? Rob, you're not going to learn math by osmosis, by putting the book under your pillow. It's not going to happen. But some of us, man, we think that's how we're going to get scripture. Man, I listen to the message all night. Caleb's on my radio while I sleep. Wow. This is, this is what you're getting. I listen to the greatest pre- It's like, so like right now, so, uh, so Ben and, and Mason, they have a little daughter, Haven, right? And, 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 uh, and, and Mason put up an Instagram picture of, 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 of Haven sleeping. And she goes, Pastor Rob, put her right out. It's like, thanks. That's great. I put her right to sleep. Some of us, that's how we are when it comes to, when it comes to the word of God. The only thing we stay up for are things that get us, our, our emotional juices going. And we never take in the word of God. How is your daily Bible reading? How is your daily walk with Jesus? Because, man, if you're not in the word, you are going to, you're going to find that you're going to receive something that's not true. And so what were they receiving? Remember, the, the video talked about they were receiving those who did what? They didn't, they didn't completely deny Christ. What did they do? They distorted it. What did they say? They said that they had that that they were they're preaching a gospel, and he and he says this: anybody who preaches a gospel contrary to what we preach, he literally says, "Let a curse be on them." Right? Let a curse be on them. And the thing is, this the phrasing and the terminology he's using is pretty strong. A curse. This, this, this damnation on what they're saying. He's saying, "Hey, they're not just left of center. Throw it out. What they're saying." He says, throw it out. He goes, why? And, 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 and some people may go, man, that's really hard language. What, you're going to curse these guys? They're a part of our church family. Why would you say they're a part of, and this is what we say all the time. Some people may be speaking something that's contrary to the word of God, but because they're inside of Christianity, especially if they have an audience, what do you tell people? Well, just pray for the brother instead of talking about him. Or you're not being loving enough because he's in the, what, what do we call it? The universal church. And the universal church has so many different branches. And because of that, we just, you know, you shouldn't be like that. Here's the thing. These Pharisees were also involved not only in a universal church, but a local church. And Paul says, damn what they're saying. Because false doctrine isn't something that can be tolerated in a local church. It is a cancer, it is a virus, it is a poison that will kill all of us if we receive something that is contrary to what the Bible says. And what were these guys talking about? Now, we, we know, and, we'll, and it'll be uh, just carved out later in the book, but they were, they were talking about things as far as Judaism is concerned. 
And the reason why Paul, I think, has such a passion about this is because he came from that cultural, religious background where he was a zealous, he says, later on, a zealot later in, in the chapter. He says that he was such a zealot for these things. He goes, you're going back to where I came from. You're going back to the very thing that Jesus saved me from. And what were the things that, that, that were mentioned specifically? And we'll talk about them. Circumcision, the eating of certain foods, and doing what? Following the, the Old Testament law that was fulfilled through Jesus Christ. So first, you think about what, what they're asking them to do. There were these Pharisees that were coming and saying, hey, hey these are the, this is the way it used to be done. We have found a balance between Jesus and still doing what we used to do. In order to be accepted in this congregation, you need to do what? This. You need to be circumcised. You need to stop eating pork. You need to know. You need to do what the Torah says. And we'll get into detail about these things, but I want to just look at those three things individually and see why Paul was so shocked. The first one is this. Circumcision. Ouch. I mean, I mean, can you imagine going up to male believers who, who have never practiced anything? They probably thought it was hokey that the Israelites did this practice. And then some Pharisee who's like a member of the church who goes to the same church you go, comes up to you and goes, by the way, you need to have this happen because that's how you show you love Jesus. I show my love to Jesus by doing what? And they're completely floored by it. I need to be circumcised in order to show that I love Jesus? Didn't Jesus already pay the price for my sins? Didn't Jesus already take me from hell to now going to heaven? Don't I now have the Spirit of God and you're telling me that I'm not fully arrived until I've done this? Take pork. These people have eaten stuff from all around the world, these Gentile believers, because Galatia, just like Ephesus, just like Philippi, just like Colossae, are, 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 are Roman Empire ports of commerce. They've eaten food from all around the world, and now they've never had these dietary restrictions, and now you're telling them you can't eat what? Get out of here. But in the last one, this is the one that's the kicker. Follow the things of the Old Testament. If you were a Gentile believer, guess what you don't have a knowledge of? The Old Testament. And so now these people who had it for how long? Millennia. Are now telling you what? Hey, you have to follow the thing that was the very part of our culture growing up that you know nothing about. Unless you know and follow all of this, you can't be with us. It should, if you really understand the the relationship between the gospel and leadership, this should really burn us. That somebody would, would tell somebody they need to do certain things besides receiving Jesus Christ in order to be part of our fellowship, right? That should just burn us up, right? Hold on. Because we do it all the time. Especially those of us, and I'm telling you again, I love you to death. Some of us who are beyond on a certain age, we look at the young whippersnappers and we're like, one day they'll get it together. And we're so pharisaical to the coming up generations, this is why they're leaving the church in droves. Because we don't show them love. We don't know. And I'm going to tell you this. I I love you to death. Some of you have been saved for decades, and you still don't know what your Bible says. You know what the old hymnal says. You know what the old preacher says. But you don't know what the book says. And you're telling everybody else what the book says. And it has nothing to do with the book. It just has to do with how you were raised. And you're leading the next generation away because you think you know what the book says and you have no clue what it says. So all of a sudden, this is how we, this is how we know we don't know what the book says. When we start telling people that they need to dress a certain way to church. Beyond modesty. Okay? Because that is in the book. Okay? Or if we tell people that this music is acceptable, but this music isn't acceptable because this one sounds like the world sounds. And I, and I, I want to tell you, someday when those hymns were written centuries ago, that's what music sounded like back then for everything else too. Read a book once in a while. You'll know. Okay? Some of our greatest hymns are old bar songs that people turned turn the, the words into to make them spiritual. God used it. Amen? <laughs> Let's think about what we tell people that that they can do with their life. Or 
when we start telling people that in, in this church, like when you start using phrases like in this church, we, we've gone off the, the rails there. When we say things like the Bible says, the gospel says that we, then we're on the right track. But we have to know what the book says in order to help the next generation. We have to know what the word of God says, the Bible says. If we don't know what it says, how are we going to train the next generation? These Judaizers, they tended to be older. They tended to be more well-read in the book, in the Bible, but they got it completely wrong. Because sometimes, this is another thing, we may know what the Bible says, but we're not interpreting it correctly either. We may have memorized what the Word of God says, but we never, we never bother to look to see the context of what the Word of God says. Sometimes we spend so much time memorizing it that we don't know the context of where it's written. And we'll quote verses all day long and we'll get it wrong. This is the other gospel. It's not denying the virgin birth. It's not denying the efficacy of the blood of Jesus. But what it is, it's adding things to it that shouldn't be in there. And how do we guilt people sometimes? What do we say? Well, you forgot where you came from. That's not how you were raised. You're not acting like you were. Thank God I don't act like the way I was. I, I think about this all the time to my shame, man. My first, my first five to, to ten years of being a pastor, I grew up in a very conservative, doctrinally rich church. But one of those churches, and you know, you could say, oh, Rob, I hate those churches. You probably grew up in one too, right? Where, every, where everything was like, you know, cookie cutter. Everybody had to look and act the same way. And you, would know whether some, you wouldn't know whether somebody was living like a hellion the rest of the week because they were wearing a tie. Right? If they're wearing a tie and a suit, then everything's great. Right? No one knows what's going on the inside. You can sing the hymns with the best of them. You know how to shout amen just at the right moment in church, and everything's cool. Right? But deep down, you don't even know Jesus. That's where I grew up. And so the first five to ten years as a pastor, that's how I preached. That's how I was raised. That's how I was taught. I used to wear suits. I used to read out only one version of the Bible. And, and I'm telling you, you start trying to act like other preachers and, and use their voices when you preach. And it's, I looked back at who I was, and I'm ashamed of it. God used it. People got saved. People's lives are changed. Teenagers are in the ministry because of, of when I just just the ministry that God allowed us to have when I was a youth pastor. But man, thank God some of them are starting to realize that this was not the way that we're supposed to live. But man, I would take a lot of stuff back. I talked to some of my old college professors who have found their way out of this just very ultra conservative militant way of living. And, and they and like we apologize to each other. Because that's what the grace and freedom that Jesus allows us to do. The grace and freedom of Jesus not only allows us to get it right when we've got it wrong, it allows us to be repentant and remorseful and move on more stronger than we were before because that's how much God loves us. Thank God he doesn't put us on a shelf when we get it wrong. So Paul is passionate. And he uses gospel leadership to say, hey, you guys have been removed. And then, then he brings up another point to, to drive it home. This is what I want us to close with. He brings up in verse 13 who he was before. He says in verse 14 that he, he advanced the way that he was before. And then verse 15, we'll pick it up there. But God, who from my mother's womb set me apart and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I could, preach, uh, I could preach him amongst the Gentiles. And then he talks about he didn't immediately consult with anyone. Now here's what I want you to think about. The gospel is so strong that even in our past before we knew Jesus, or even when we knew Jesus and weren't either receiving the right doctrine or dispelling the right doctrine or calling things doctrine that wasn't doctrine, even through all this, God knew us before we were even born. This is why we think so strongly about the doctrine of the sanctity of life. 
That life begins at conception, but life was planned way before conception. Jesus knew who we were even before we were in the womb. And so he says, even with all the bad things that Paul did in his life, consenting to Stephen being killed, trying to persecute Christians, God used all of the negative to now make his life this positive effect because all of the things that he knows intellectually and religiously, once he realizes what those means spiritually, he now has a bunch of knowledge he can use in the right way. Who else, who else do you know of in the New Testament times could straighten out a Judaizer except somebody who used to be involved in Judaism? Some of you have been involved in organized religion. Some of you have been involved in, in parts of Christianity that at this moment may not preach the gospel as strong. You are the best advocate that someone else has to tell them, here's what the gospel really means because this is who I was. This is now who I am. And some of us have to get over being so upset about how we were raised and use our knowledge and our experience to help lead other people into the truth. It's not my job to get people to stop wearing suits, but it is my job for them to realize that those suits aren't going to get them into heaven, that it's only through Jesus Christ. That's what the truth is. It's not because grandma bought me to church because it's one day I received the Jesus that my grandma received. It's our privilege because of this knowledge that God can use it. And, and this is how Paul did. Paul said, I didn't consult with anybody. Let's look at verse 16. I, I went up to Jerusalem. Oh, here we go. To reveal this on the 17, I mean, I'm sorry. I did not go up to Jerusalem to those who had become apostles before me. Instead, I went to Arabia and came back to Damascus. He said, man, I, I just, I went to Arabia. We know that, that during this time in the desert in Arabia, that's when Jesus really spoke to him a lot and, and taught him. He comes back to Damascus, right, where he was first going to go and persecute Christians, and he starts preaching the gospel. He says, this is what I did. Now look at verse 18. He does go up after three years, after three years of preaching the gospel, after three years of having his life on the line from going from this Judaism to Christianity, he spends time with Cephas, whose name is Peter, and he spends 15 days with him. He didn't see any other apostle there except James, who's not an apostle, but the pastor of the Jerusalem church. This is all the people that he's seen that have ever been Jewish that are now Christians. So most of Paul's life inside of Christianity has been around who? Gentiles. So he's going, I'm, what I'm telling you is, I haven't, this is what he says, I haven't had enough contact with those people who are saying you need to add these things to your faith for it ever to be true. He says, man, if I thought, as the Apostle Paul, if I thought in order for you to be a believer, you need to be circumcised, not eat pork, and also follow the Torah, don't you think I would have been hanging out with these guys more? No, because it has nothing to do with our cultural background. It has nothing to do with our religious upbringing. Jesus Christ makes us a new creature in him. The old things are what? Passed away. Behold, everything is now new. 